psalm is fortunately right in the middle of your Bible, so just crack it in half and you should be there. Psalm 88. If you don't have a Bible or you uh, forgot to bring yours, there should be a white paperback Bible in the pew in front of you. Go ahead and grab that. And we will read it together. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Let one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a whore to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do you departed? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your tears. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thanks, babe. I say thanks, babe. She's my wife. It's okay. Well, good morning, guys. Pretty bleak text, right? Pretty grim. Um, welcome. For those of you who don't know, my name is Tyler. I'm the worship pastor here at Westside. have the honor to be able to uh, worship with you guys every single week. And as Pastor Jason and his family are still on a little bit of a vacation, wrapping things up, I would ask that you would continue to pray for them, as we talked about last week, that, that God would give them rest, and God would give them the, the rest and the peace that they need to be able to come back in and, and uh, take charge of everything that, that leadership requires and that he would uh, fulfill them in that. So we're continuing through our psalm series, right? We're continuing through uh, learning how to express our emotions biblically. And last week, we kind of went through um, what abandonment was like, and we looked at Psalm 22, and we looked at Jesus on the cross, and, and uh, there was a Spurgeon quote that we mentioned there that, that talked about um, how, the, how that psalm was probably more about Jesus than it was about David, and once you see Jesus in the text, you may not even see or care to see David. And then he went on to say that uh, for, for such as this psalm, there is none like it. Um, and as I was studying this week, I kind of found myself saying a similar thing about this psalm. Um, in a different context, there is, there is no other psalm like this psalm. It's very grim. Um, we, it's probably the only psalm that we see uh, in, in all 150 psalms that does not end with some kind of affirmation or, or some kind of uh, saving language from the Lord declaring his goodness and his righteousness. It just leaves us with a final line of, my beloved, uh, my, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me and my 
companions have become darkness. I'm reminded of the song, Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend. If you know that one, it kind of reminds you a little bit of that. So this morning, uh, what we're going to be looking at in light of this psalm is we're going to be looking at depression. We're going to be looking at how, how uh, we can deal with depression, what it means to be dealing with depression through looking at uh, the light, uh, through looking through the lens of this psalm. Um, and so what I'm going to do this morning, before I get into um, the statistics, I want to read a little bit about the types of depression and then um, the prevalence of depression uh, and talk a little bit about what it's, what it's like in our country, what it's like in the world, and then what, the, uh, what those individual afflictions look like. But before I do that, I would ask that uh, you would pray with me. I, w- I want us all to bow our heads and ask God that, um, that he would give us the grace uh, by his Holy Spirit and, and by his power to understand um, that what we're dealing with this morning is actually uh, probably the first emotion in the, in the list of, of emotions that we've co- covered through this series that is not just an emotion, it's actually an affliction. It's actually something that, that is physically, um, can, can be physically wrong, whether it's a, a chemical imbalance in the brain or uh, some kind of affliction that has been brought on by, by a, a single bout of trauma or a traumatic event that has happened. So, so can you just join me in a word of prayer as we ask the Holy Spirit and God to help us with this this morning? Heavenly Father, uh, we understand that, that we are looking at a very deep and a very heavy subject this morning. Um, my prayer would be that, that by the glory and the righteousness and, and the goodness of your word, declaring who you are and how we can walk through this, um, you would teach us to, to soften our hearts. And by the power of your spirit, you would soften our hearts to this affliction that those around us or maybe us ourselves are actually suffering from. Let us view it through, through the lens of your word. And Holy Spirit, help me to, to speak clearly this morning, to speak concisely. And if there be anything that is not in your word that I have tried to muster up out of it, I pray that you would silence it. Um, soften our hearts to receive your word this morning and help me as, as we go through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. I'd like to talk to you for, for just a moment about the types of depression, um, and then I'll go into the prevalence, and then we'll go into a little bit of information from there, and then we'll break down the text and see uh, how we can deal with depression and what all of this means for us. So the types of depression that you may have heard about, firstly, is a major, major depression. Um, the National Institute of Mental Health is where I'm getting most of these statistics from, uh, defines major depression as something that is caused by a single traumatic event. Um, it's a single bout of depression, a feeling of lowliness, um, and, and a feeling of, of uh, just despair, and you can't shake it really, um, but eventually uh, it, it, it kind of fades away or goes away, and that, that is what the National Institute of Mental Health uh, defines um, major depression is. And then uh, a lot of you may be, com- may be familiar with this one. The next one is persistent depressive disorder. That is essentially what major depression is, but it's where that, that, that bout of major depression lasts for longer than two years, um, which if you have that or if you know someone who has that, it could be a very difficult thing um, to overcome or to live with or even to deal with, um, constantly uh, overeating or undereating, uh, losing sleep, not wanting to socialize, wanting to isolate yourself. We'll get into that a little bit later, but that's um, persistent de- depressive disorder. Bipolar disorder, some of you have heard of this and maybe have thought that it was kind of separate from uh, depression in and of itself, but it's actually a form of depression, and uh, if you're not familiar with it, bipolar disorder is, is an affliction where you have these all-time highs, right? You're extremely excited and extroverted and, and want to hang out with everybody around you and want to spend time with people, and then it's immediately followed by these very low-swinging major depressive or persistent depressive disorder uh, uh, feelings and, 
and manifestations. Um, next, we have what is aptly acronymed SAD, S-A-D, Seasonal Affective Disorder. You see a lot of this on, on the northwest coast, um, a lot of clouds. And basically what, what Seasonal Affective Disorder is, is, is uh, it's your depression is, is kind of triggered or, or your mood is, is kind of governed by the amount of sunlight that you see. Um, and so you do see a lot of this on the coast because there's, there's always cloud cover. If you've ever been out there, it's kind of gloomy and you talk to people and they're like, hey, it's, I guess it's good to see you. I don't know. So... Seasonal affective disorder. The next one is postpartum depression. Uh, a lot of uh, this, obviously, for women. Um, after you have had a child, you can go into these uh, great swinging lows of, of feelings of depression where, where you're not getting any sleep at night. You may be asking yourself questions like, am I going to be a good mother? Am I prepared to be a parent? Is the house clean enough? Am I safe in this house? Um, all of those things that come along with bringing in a newborn in, into your environment and what that entails can cause that to... Um, become a, a portion or a part of depression in your life. And the last type of depression is psychotic depression. Um, if you've never heard of this one, the National Institute of Mental Health basically characterizes this as, as someone who has lost touch with reality, that their feelings have, uh, are inconsistent with reality and they see things like hallucinations or they believe things that are not true. And so, so those are some of the types of depression, and I want to talk to you about the prevalence of it for just a second. Um, and I really, the reason I'm doing this is breaking it down to see how big of a problem we actually have, um, because this is a very serious issue, and it's not just an emotion that we feel, but it's an affliction that we experience. So the prevalence, the National Institute of Mental Health estimates that in the United States, 16 million adults had at least one major depressive episode in 2012. 16 million. Sometimes I think we hear these numbers, and we hear, like, movie stars and how much money they make and everything. We forget how much, like numbers are worth and their value. One million is like 999,999 of something, and then you plus one. And then you multiply that times 16. That's a lot of people, okay? That's a lot of people. That's 6.9% of the population. According to the World Health Organization, 350 million people worldwide suffer from depression, and it is the leading cause of disability in our country and in the world. Data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health highlights the problem among young adults. From 2008 to 2010, more than 8% of young adults between the ages of 18 and 22 reported a major depressive episode in the previous year. When it comes to gender, women are more likely to be diagnosed with depression than men. So clearly we have a problem, right? 6.9% of our population five years ago done in a survey suffered from at least one major bout of depression. A massive amount of that is attributed to the young people, our, our teenagers and our young adults. So clearly we see that depression is very prevalent um, in our society and in our culture. So, so what are we going to do with that this morning? We're going to look at depression, how we can deal with it, and ask ourselves, um, how, do, how do I deal with depression? And we're going to break it down through the text and take a look at it from there. So the first point that we have this morning, how do I deal with depression? Number one, I have to confront it. Number one is confront it. Um, I quote movies and books a lot for use of illustration because I love them. This week you're getting two sci-fi books, so strap in and get ready for that. Uh, the first book is H.G. Uh, Wells, The Time Machine. If you've read this book, you have a high school reading level or higher or lower. Uh, sometimes I like to go back to H.G. Wells and read some of his stuff because it makes me feel really smart and like my reading level is really high and like I can read really fast. Um, so anyways, I reread through this book this last week and there is a scene, um, it's, it's there's a scene where this time traveler is, has created this time machine, 
and he gathers all of his buddies into, into his house and shows them this tiny little model, and, and he sends it into the future to show them that he's not joking around and that this is the real deal. And then he invites them over to his house again the next Friday night, and uh, he comes back into the room to have dinner, and his clothes are tattered, he's dirty, and he looks exhausted. And they're asking him what has happened. Basically, this is where we get the entirety of the book. The, the, the time traveler says, I will tell you what happened, but I ask for no interruptions. And then you get the next 12 chapters. And he goes on to tell them about how he has, he has just come back from traveling 890-something thousand years into the future on his front, on his front lawn. And he, gets, he talks about how he gets out of this time machine. He meets this new species that, that uh, is kind of like a human hybrid thing. He learns their language, spends, times with, spends time with them, eats with them, and gets to know their culture and everything. And by the end of that day, the sun is going down, and he's going back to his time machine to get in and come back to present day and age, and the time machine is gone. And, and the book goes on to describe how he is panicking. He's frantic and, and wondering, where in the world is this time machine? Has it jumped into the future on accident? Has someone come and taken it? And the book goes on to talk about how he was tearing through the woods that night looking for it, cutting his hands and his limbs, uh, uh, cutting his hands on branches, and just losing his mind. And then the next morning, after searching for his time machine all through the night, he sits down and watches the sunrise, and he says this. He says, I sat up in the freshness of the morning trying to remember how I had gotten there and why I had such a profound sense of desertion and despair. Then things came clear to my mind. With the plain and reasonable daylight, I could look my circumstances clearly and fairly in the face. What do we see him doing? He's confronting his situation, right? He's confronting the fact that I may be lost and isolated in this time, 890-something thousand years in the future, with nobody I can communicate with and nobody that understands me. We see the psalmist doing the same thing. He's confronting it. Look down at your Bibles at verses 3 through 5. Remember, we're in Psalm 88. If you're not there yet, I'll give you a second to flip there. Psalm chapter 88, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 5 and seeing how the time travel is confronting his problem, confronting his depression. When you get to verse 3, look up at me. Looks like most of us are there. Follow along with me. Verse 3 through 5. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, and like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. What's the psalmist doing? Well, first of all, we have to understand that he is confronting the situation that he's in, and he's describing and addressing what it's causing him, like how it's causing him pain, and 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 where he's at. He's feeling as though he's feeling as though his soul is full of trouble. My life draws near to Sheol, which is death or or this unknown afterlife. Um, and then uh, I'm a man who has no strength. Everything I have is gone. He's looking at his situation in the face, and at least acknowledging that that he has a problem that he's in the midst of something and he's confronting it. And I want you to notice and realize that it's the first thing that he does. The first verse after the introduction of, of verse 1 and 2, verses 3 through 5, the first thing that the psalmist does is he confronts it. He looks his problem in the face and he sings out or prays out as the psalm is a prayer where he is at and what this affliction is, how this affliction is causing him pain. He feels lost and hopeless. He feels concerned with things like death, the absence of God in his life and specifically how it's crushed his spirit. And he begins it with sadness. And he begins it with addressing it and confronting it. And so we have to do the same thing. But you may be asking yourself, why on earth do I need to confront this? 
Why on earth do I, do I even need to, to take a look at why I have to? I mean, it's easier for me to just to sweep it into the broom, broom closet. Who has a broom closet? Why did I say that? Sweep it under the rug, sweep this issue under the rug, and say that I don't have it, and if I don't look at it, it's not a problem. Because when we confront our situation, it helps us to see clearly. When I confront my situation, it helps me to see clearly. What, what, is it, what does that mean? It helps me to see clearly. To, to be able to, to confront something, you, you, you have to know what it looks like in order to see clearly. When you see clearly, you can see things better. And, and, and what I mean by this is, is in, in light of, of this, this emotion, this affliction of depression, some of, you, some of you don't even know if you have it or not. You may be wondering if you have depression, if you have major depression or persistent depressive disorder. And I, I want to encourage you. We thank God for science, and we thank God for, for the medical field. Um, I'm an idiot if I have a broken leg and I don't go to the doctor, Okay. And so if you're prescribed medication, that's okay, and you need to take that, and that's all right. But if you don't know that you have this problem, you can't confront it and see clearly if you don't know. So I would encourage you, if you think you may be struggling with this, go, go to the Internet. Go to the local library, and there, go to your doctor and ask for a screening of this, and, and at least go through those questions where they ask you things like, are you overly exhausted all the time? Are you over or under eating? Or have you lost interest in things like making a cup of coffee in the morning or playing with your kids? Those are, are signs that you may have this, and the moment you take that, that survey or, or, or that screening, you may find that you have this, and then once you know you have it, you can confront it. And when you confront it, you can begin to see things clearly. And why does that help us? When I confront something and it helps me see clearly, well, what does it help me see clearly? That takes us to our next point. When I confront my situation, it helps me to see clearly and to be able to correct my perspective. Number two is correct my perspective. Another sci-fi, sci-fi book for you. Uh, Douglas Adams, it's also a comedy. Every page of this book makes me laugh out loud, and I would encourage you to read it. Douglas Adams wrote a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Hitchhiker, you ever read it? Raise your hand. All right, all right. Awesome book. I love it. Every page makes me laugh. I said that already. Uh, in, the, in the book, there is this character named Marvin, and he is what, uh, what Douglas Adams <laughs> describes as a manically depressed robot. Look at him. Look how sad he looks. I love it. Uh, and, this vo- and this movie is actually voiced by Alan Rickman, which is hilarious. But um, we need to correct our perspective. And, and I talk about uh, Douglas Adams and Marvin, the, the depressed robot, um, because the first thing that we need to do is to understand, uh, understand where we are. But to, to get to there, I want to read you some quotes from Marvin and, and, and talk about his perspective. These are some quotes from Marvin, the manically depressed robot. I'm going to give you a little accent this morning. I hope you enjoy it. Marvin, I think you ought to know I'm feeling very depressed. Trillion... Well, we have something that might take your mind off it. And Marvin says, it won't work. I have an exceptionally large mind. And then Marvin goes on to say in another scene, funny, Marvin intoned funereally. I love that. How just when you think life can't possibly get any worse, it suddenly does. And he goes on to say in a final scene where their ship is coming above the clouds and they see sunlight for the first time. And he says, incredible. And everyone looks at him thinking he's going to say something positive, And he says, it's even worse than I thought it'd be. It's even worse than I thought it'd be. What do we see with Marvin? What's he doing? We're seeing that he's, that, that he's uh, in, in light of trying to correct our perspective, we're seeing that Marvin may not have the best perspective. He's basically the modern-day version or the futuristic version of Eeyore, what we know as Eeyore, like never sunshine on me. And so you see him, and you see this perspective that Marvin has, and it's everything is internalized on himself. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm severely depressed. It won't work. I have an exceptionally large mind. Funny how when you think things are going to get better, they don't for me. So the first thing that we need to do in understanding that we need to correct our perspective is understand where we are. 
understand where we are. Look with me in the text, verses 6 through 9. 6 through 9. We see the psalmist here putting, describing where he is and understanding where he is. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. Uh, overwhelm me? Why don't you circle that in your Bible, underline that. Uh, the, the Hebrew for that is anah, uh, which actually means um, to be pushed down or to be afflicted or depressed, but not like the emotion that we think of depressed, but, but more like actually depressed down into the ground. So push down. So why don't you make a note of that? And again, I'm not a brilliant man. That's blueletterbible.com. You can do it too. Uh, verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them, and I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, and I spread out my hands to you. In verses 6 through 9, we see the psalmist really um, understanding where he is. Understanding that he is low in regions dark and deep. Not just confronting it, but now that he's confronted it, he can now see clearly to understand where he is, to correct his perspective. And he's, and he's saying things like, I'm in regions low and dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You, you afflict or depress me with your waves, and you have caused my companions, my friends, to leave me. You've made me a horrible sight to them, and I am shut in so that I cannot escape. It's very difficult to read that. Sometimes it would be tough to, to even get to a place to where we could articulate where exactly we are and to understand where we are. I think one of the ways, one of the things that we can do that helps us is to ask questions is to ask ourselves and maybe even ask God or friends around us questions. I'm going to go through a list of four questions here that you may be asking yourself if you're struggling with depression or asking your friends or maybe some of your friends or family members who are struggling with it are asking you. And I'm going to break them down a little bit. Questions you may ask yourself. Number one, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve this? What do you mean by that? I mean, did I do something six or seven years ago that was so abhorrent in the eyes of God that now he has afflicted me with this depression and that's my punishment? Was I in a heated argument with my spouse or I raised my kid up wrong and now I have to deal with this problem? First of all, let me clarify that that the answer to, to God punishing you because of your sins, that doesn't happen. He did that on Jesus. And we praise God for that and we thank him for that. But that is a very understandable question. What did I do to deserve this? Sometimes you just don't know. Is it something that, is it something, is it sin that's being revealed in my life and it's a difficult thing to address and to look at? So it's putting me in this lowly state that I may find hope and rescue from and I may not? Some of you may have asked yourself that. Secondly, some of you may have asked, why me? Why me? As long as I can remember, there has been a member of my family as far back as I can go in my lineage who I know we have documents of them struggling with this affliction. Why my family? I pay my taxes. I come to church. I sing. I put money in the plate. Why me? Some of you may have asked yourself that. Number three, what is the purpose of my depression? We see this one a lot. We see, we see a response sometimes from, from friends and family of, uh, of hallmark versions of, of, of uh, misquoted scripture of, well, God won't give you more than hand, you can handle, or everything happens for a reason, brother, or you should just have more faith. If you really love Jesus, you could, you could just be happy. And some of you who struggle with depression know, and as I've read and studied this week, that that is probably the most discouraging thing that you can hear as a response to that. Just have more faith. I love Jesus, but I still feel this way. 
And that takes us to our last question. If God loves me, why do I feel this way? If God is good, and I know that God uses all things together for the, for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose, that he knows every hair on my head, if, he got, if God loves me, why do I feel this way? Is it because we're fallen and broken? That we live in a fallen world and our bodies are still, still not, not being brought up into glory at the, at, at, at the second coming? What is it? I think sometimes we need to understand that it's okay to ask questions. We need to understand that it's, the psalmist had questions. I'll come back to those questions in just a second. But look with me in verses 10 through 12. We see that it's okay to ask questions, that heavy questions like this, because we see the psalmist doing it as well. Verse 10 through 12, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? We see this theme of death and this, and this, worrying, uh, this worrying feeling and this isolation feeling, that, this isolated feeling that the psalmist is expressing, and, and it's leading him to ask questions of, I, I don't know where I'm headed. I don't know where I'm going after I die. Are you even going to be there? I feel as though you may not be here now. Are you going to be there? The psalmist is asking questions, and it lets us know that it's okay for us to ask questions. And I think one of, one of the biggest disservices that, that the church, not just the, the church in the Bible Belt or evangelical community altogether, but, but the, the church in general, has done a major disservice to people with depression, with answering them things who have asked those questions like, just have more faith, or God won't give you more than you can handle. We hear those things again and again. If you really love Jesus, you would just be happier. Just, just snap out of it. Come on. You live a good life. Look around you. You have friends who love you. You have family who love you. You have a great job. You're financially secure. Everything is going well. Your kids are happy. Just snap out of it. Far be it from us to, to, to try and step into an environment or an affliction that we do not understand. Sometimes the greatest thing that you can say to somebody who is battling depression and has been for years when they ask you a question like, if God loves me, why do I feel this way? Why me? What is my, what is my purpose for being depressed? Sometimes the greatest thing you can say is, I don't know. I don't know. But I know who has the answers. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is just sit with that person and to spend time with them Invite them to come to your social gathering or to your house for dinner or go to them where they are and just sit next to them on the couch for two hours. So we have to understand where we are. We have to understand where we are. Asking questions helps us figure that out. But when we understand who we are, it leads us to our next sub-point. I can better understand who is in control. I can better understand who is in control. Look at the end of verse 9 through 12. We're going to read these verses again. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? I think it's interesting to me that the psalmist throughout these verses is constantly addressing the one person who he knows can fix everything, who he knows who is in control. Yes, we see verses where he is attributing his own, his own affliction as maybe God has allowed this to happen to me, 
or maybe God has even done this to me. But he's still crying out and he's still understanding who is in control. And that is extremely helpful for us. When we understand who is in control, it takes us to our next point. When I understand who is in control, it leads me to cry out. Number three is cry out. And this point is actually broken up into into two parts as well. Um, And it's more focused around this idea of isolation. Um, This feeling of isolation that that many people that I've I've found through research and, and through speaking with people who are afflicted with this throughout the week, that isolation is a big part of feeling depressed. It's actually an emotion um, and an experience that is closely coupled with it. I would almost call them sisters. Um, And so we cry out. And if you want to know if the psalmist knew about isolation, um, what do we mean when we're talking about isolation? Look with me in verse 8. In verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them, and I am shut in so that I cannot escape. So my friends have left me. Everybody that I know is petrified of me. They think that I'm too much to handle or don't want to be around me. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved, possibly his wife, and my friend to shun me, and my companions have become darkness. Some translations say my only friend is now darkness. We're seeing that the psalmist is is acquainted with this feeling of isolation. That peppered through the center and the end of this psalm, it's almost sandwiched, that that he feels alone. And we see that a lot with depression. Um, And and first of all, we're we're trying out and understanding that the psalmist is coming from understanding what isolation is. And that leads us to understand that we need to cry out first to the Creator. To the Creator. We need to cry out to the Creator. Um, Have you ever had a new car? Raise your hand if you've ever bought a new car. All right, awesome. Maybe, let's say you have an awesome new car. You get the fire engine red, zero to 1,000 miles per hour in 0.2 seconds. That would be like a spaceship. That would be an amazing car. Uh, you have the full like, powertrain warranty, and something goes wrong. Something breaks down. Do you take the car to your buddy who lives down the street and uses parts from out of his garage? No. Who do you take it to? You take it to the dealer or, the, or someone who knows the manufacturer. Because you want to take that vehicle to somebody who knows the working parts of that car, who understands how every piece fits together to function properly as a whole. And we see the psalmist crying out to the creator. And I wanted to mention this, that in 18 verses, the word you, that is the pronoun that is used to addressing the father, is used 28 times. 28 times. He, he knows that God is in control and, and maybe attributing God to having having maybe afflicted this stuff on him or allowing this to happen to him, he's going to the one person who knows the design of his heart. He's going to the one person and crying out to the creator who knows how he is formed and knows how he should function properly. So even though this psalm is a massive lament and is very grim and does not seem to have hope in it at all, and we see the psalmist living in this grief and living in this depression, this entire psalm is is addressed to and a prayer to the creator of everything. The psalmist would have understood that, that as he is singing out and, and crying and praying out to Yahweh, that to, to, to Elohim, he would, he would be addressing the man who, addressing the God who when he spoke, things were. And when he breathed, life was. And so he's calling out to the one, the one God who he knows that there may be hope in for fixing me or for delivering me or for saving me. Look at verse 1 through 2. 
O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you and incline your ear to my cry. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. We're seeing the psalmist cry out. The very beginning of this psalm, the very introduction, the first thing that he does, even before he, he confronts it, even, even before he figures out that he needs to correct his perspective or to cry out, he's reaching out to the Creator and to the Father. And this, this psalm in its entirety, even though it is a lament, the one person it's addressing is the one he has hope in, that he knows it is God, his Father, his salvation. Jeremiah 1.5 puts it this way. It says, Before I formed you in the womb and before you were born, I consecrated you. Some texts say that I knew you. And, and that passage is in context about, about anointing a prophet to be a prophet among nations. But, but through the sovereignty and the goodness of God's word, we can also know that that applies to us and he knows every fiber of our being. So firstly, we need to cry out to the creator. But secondly, we need to cry out in community. And this is, this is very important. We need to cry out in community. This last week, um, I put out a Facebook uh, study question, I guess. And the question that I asked was, uh, for those of you who struggle with or for those of you who know uh, are dealing with or struggling with depression, what is the most difficult thing about having depression? And I was overwhelmed by their responses. I was shocked to see, uh, I was shocked to see that many people that I know Many friends and family members that I know who contacted me and replied to that Facebook post or contacted me privately because they didn't want their, their uh, thing there for everybody to see, I was shocked at the amount of people who actually um, deal with this affliction. And specifically when we're talking about crying out in community, I had a friend who I had a private message with um, on Facebook, and he, he kind of summed it up in a quote with this. It felt like everybody was kind of saying uh, similar things in terms of what depression feels like, and it feels like being isolated. It feels like being alone and that nobody understands. And, and my friend puts it this way, um, and I took this from a snippet from our conversation. Hope you don't mind, man. When we isolate ourselves, we are unable to spread God's love or to see how others experience his love. One of the most crippling aspects of depression is the uncontrollable self-isolation. You can feel alone even in a crowded room. You can feel alone even though you want to connect with others and even when others are trying to connect with you. It is really difficult as followers of Christ. It is incumbent upon us to extend the community of God's kingdom even to people who are not actively seeking it. For those of us who do not struggle with depression and, and we know people that do, and we know people that are struggling with this affliction, I would encourage you, no matter how often they isolate themselves or how often they, they push back or say no to being invited somewhere or don't want you to come over, I would encourage you to continue to pursue that because what they need is community and what they need is Jesus. And that's what we need. The, the, the early Christian church in, in the book of Acts 2017-something years ago was formed on two things, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and community. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and community. And we see that throughout, throughout the New Testament, God uses people to advance the gospel. God uses people to spread his name amongst the nations. And to bring glory to himself. It, it, it reminded me, in thinking about isolation, it reminded me of a scripture that, that um, I have c committed to memory and have had in my mind for a very long time. And I saw new light in it because of God's glory and the goodness of his word. But it's Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. And it says, to bear one another's burdens 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, and I often thought of this passage as something that, that okay, well, I'm going to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Let's go meet with someone who's been diagnosed with cancer in the hospital. Let's pray with somebody who has lost a loved one. Um, let's, let's go and give money to people who need it, uh, help people getting from one property to another, paying the rent, whatever. Bearing a burden, right? The things that, that if God puts us in a, in a prevalent situation and provides us to be able to provide for them, that it's almost easy. But as I was thinking about this situation and, and, and thinking about isolation, isolation is very difficult. It's very difficult to approach somebody who is isolated. And when you're isolated yourself, it's very difficult to approach others or to even cry out, whether it be to God or into community. And so I thought about this verse. To bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? And in Matthew 22, verse 20, Matthew 11, verse, I'm sorry, no, Matthew 22, 36 through 39, um, the disciples are asking Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And this is the greatest commandment. And the second, don't miss this, is like it. They're the same, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when I think about that being the law of Christ, that we love the Lord God with all of who we are and we love, we love our neighbor as ourselves, that means in order to bear one another's burdens, I, I am sometimes called to bear the burdens of others when it's extremely difficult. When, when bearing that burden with a brother or sister in Jesus or a friend who is not a believer may take years, may take decades of, of meeting with them, praying with them, just spending time with them, helping them deal with and bearing this depression with them. That even when it's difficult, it's something that I'm called to do, to bear that burden with them, even if it's a hard thing to do. And so I would encourage you, before we move on to our next point, if you have depression, or if this is something that you struggle with, or or you're feeling the symptoms and you're not sure, I would just encourage you, if there's anything that you hear from today's message, that it would be this. Talk to somebody. Reach out. Talk to somebody. Before you lay your head down on your pillow at night, reach out in community and tell somebody, look, I need help. I'm tired. I can't get over this on my own. And that's the beauty of it. We were not designed to do it on our own. We were designed to do it side by side, that when we come in together, what we do in this room on a Sunday morning and what we do in community groups throughout the year, we are, we are joining together and looking up to Christ, and we do not look to him alone. We look to him as the early church did, and as we do now, with believers by our side, to help us through it all. And that leads us to our last point, is when we cry out in community, and when we cry out in Christ, we find comfort. We find comfort in the cross. We find comfort in the cross. We know and understand, as, as we saw last week, that when Jesus was abandoned... And forsaken by all of his friends and, and all of his family and, and being mocked by the people on the sides of him at the cross and being forsaken and abandoned by the Father for a moment or, or for hours we don't know so that we could be adopted and forgiven. He felt the most isolated and more isolated than any of us probably ever will. And I know that, I know that is a bold statement for those of you who struggle with depression. You say, Tyler, you don't know. I, I, this is something that I've battled for years, and, and I cannot seem to overcome this. 
That's one of the reasons that, that I've titled this morning's sermon Dealing with Depression and, and not what I originally wanted to was Destroying Depression. Because yes, I do believe that God is good and faithful and, and ruler and king over all and that depression can be destroyed in our lives. But many of us will not experience a healing or a deliverance from that. And so that's why it's titled Dealing with Depression. So we can see how we can confront it and correct our perspective and do that in community and find comfort in the cross. Find comfort. Maybe not healing, but comfort from the creator, from the person who knows how we work and how we operate. Psalm 34, 18, our call to worship this morning said this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He is close to the brokenhearted for those who are crushed in spirit. I believe he's close to us in, in his presence and through his word and through his community, through his church. In the same way that, that the love of Jesus has been brought to people for thousands of years through people and through his word, we find that same comfort today through God's people and through his word and the cross. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Guys, sometimes this affliction is exhausting. Raise your hand if, if you know of somebody. You don't have to raise your hand if it's you, but raise your hand if you know somebody who struggles with depression. Look around. Look around. The amount of exhaustion and isolation that comes along with this thing requires community. If you know somebody in this room today that is struggling with it, I, I, I plead with you to cry out, to give them comfort and community and to show them Jesus and to help them find comfort in the cross and to know that, that when we come to Christ in all of our afflictions and, and, and all of our pain, that we may not necessarily find healing for every, every affliction that we have, but we can find comfort in the cross. The band is going to come up and lead us in a time of response this morning. And before they do, or before we enter into a time of response, I, I, I want to drive home what, what our big idea is this morning, and it's basically just our last point, that in the midst of my depression, I can find comfort in the cross. In the midst of my depression, I can find comfort in Jesus, knowing that he was abandoned and isolated and betrayed and damaged and lower and depressed and afflicted more than anybody ever will be. The way that I come to him is humbly in community through his word. And we have a hope. We have a hope that we can lean on. Pastor Jason read this text a few weeks ago, and I want to read it to you again in light of something else, in light of community, in light of understanding what the family of God is going to look like and how we can apply that now to ourselves. Why don't you stand as I read the word of the Lord? Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. 
and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor trying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Verse five. And he who has seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be as my son. He will be my son. Guys, we see in this depiction of the new city an immense picture of of community. Not just with God, but with one another. We see pictures of a wedding. And a party and a wedding feast where, where we're not alone, but surrounded by fellow believers rejoicing in the union between God's church and the glory of God and celebrating his goodness together in community. We see that because of the price that Jesus paid and because of what is coming in the new city and the new kingdom, that we will be children and our children and sons and daughters of God. Let this drive home this morning the importance of community. The importance of of being there for one another, truly bearing one another's burdens, even when it's difficult, even when it's tough. For those of you who have depression, for those of you who struggle with it, please reach out to somebody today. Take a screening to figure out if you may or may not have it. I would encourage you to do that. Two last things. Um, Some of you have dealt with this your entire life. Some of you may pray, cry out to the Lord, his goodness and his graciousness for his glory you may find healing in that you may wake up one day and feel alert and joyful and happy and praise god for that we give him glory some of you are just the opposite that you've struggled for a very long time and like the psalmist you cry out and you're living in it you know who you're addressing and you know that he's capable some of you may not find that healing still praise god we still give God glory. God has given us his word and psalms like these to to be able to cry out and to learn how to deal with and walk through these difficult seasons of life. When I feel alone, when I feel isolated and I know that nobody wants to have anything to do with me and I can't go and see them because I don't know what they think about me or I don't find enjoyment in anything anymore thing I can run to is community, not just with those around me, with Jesus and God's family. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word this morning and your glory and, and, and your church and your community to help us really truly understand what it is to deal with this emotion and this affliction of abandonment. God, we know that often we feel isolated and we feel alone when we have this. And maybe we know people who who are afflicted with that. Give us the courage and the grace to fulfill your word and bear their burdens with them, even when it is difficult. Give us the grace and the energy and the persistence to pursue them consistently as you have pursued us. So we look to the cross this morning. We look at what it took for this new kingdom to come and for us to have a hope of what life in community with the Father will be like and we can apply that here and now because he is with us. 
word tells us that you will never leave us or forsake us. You are with us always, even to the end of the age. Remind us of that if we are feeling isolated and alone. And give us as a community and a body of believers the grace to come around those who are hurting. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I would encourage you guys, come forward as you feel led to respond to what Christ has done. And if you would like prayer or you want to talk to somebody about this, please either come forward, get with your community group or your family or your friends. Talk to somebody today. Okay. Come forward as you feel led.